Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Night South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No will today. He has to be on set for his day job, so mostly a solo pod, but Matt Hayes is going to join me in a bit. He's going to catch us up on some SEC spring developments, um, and I'm going to close with a Sweet 16 edition of Bold and Brash. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the NCAA tournament this weekend. It was awesome. Even as a football guy, I love, love, love the NCAA tournament opening weekend. Not sure that I really explained this. I probably should have, um, but I covered it here in Orlando for our ACC site, Saturday Road. I was writing some Duke and Virginia stories, and I was also writing um, Tennessee stuff as well, uh, obviously for SDS. I've been fortunate enough to have some pretty cool experiences in this business, and I got to say, like, this week... I guess it is a week because it started, you know, Wednesday essentially and went through Saturday. Um, it was among my favorite for a couple of different reasons. First time that I've ever covered something like a like a big multi day event where I could just drive home fifteen minutes and sleep in my own bed. Love that. <laughs> Need more of that in my life. Um, I've covered the NCAA tournament in person before. Love being able to do that. Did so writing for the student newspaper at Indiana back in 2012 for that team who got sent up to Portland. Then they won both games there. They earned a spot in Sweet 16 against Kentucky. Got to play in the Georgia Dome against the Anthony Davis Kentucky team who won it all. You know how that played out. I've done the session deal. I've been to games. I've done the drink all day with my buddies during spring break deal. I've done the sports bar with Lauren deal. I've done the write-off games from the comfort of my couch deal. Like I I think that's why I love March Madness because there are just so many different ways to do this. And regardless of whether I'm getting paid to cover it and, you know, kind of regardless of whether or not my bracket is awful or incredible – I always come away thinking that there are so few things that can truly capture that early round excitement. And this isn't going to be some big rant on comparing it to football because I I do really want to watch college basketball in the NCAA tournament and appreciate it for what it is and appreciate the college football postseason for what it is. And they're just different. They're different. And that's okay. And that's totally fine. Understand the confines surrounding post sports. You can enjoy both. There's nothing wrong with doing it. You don't have to pick one or the other. You don't have to feel shamed or think that, man, it wouldn't be great if we had this. Yeah, but obviously that's not realistic to do that in college football because of the way that the game set up. Um, What I wanted to do was dig into my vantage point as a football guy who admittedly, like I, I swoop in to cover this sport the last few weeks. That's the way that it sets up. Adam Spencer, Joe Cox, they do such a great job for SDS, especially kind of year round on the basketball beat. And then I, you know, during a little bit of that springtime, when things get interesting in, you know, in college basketball, I come in and, you know, pretty much devote all my time and energy on the writing side uh, to that. But I'm admitting like I wasn't locked into every single second because as I always say, I love, and this relates to football too. I love being at events in person. That energy is second to none, but the biggest drawback and the only, it's not even a complaint. I'm grateful, so grateful to be able to do this, but the biggest drawback is that you just can't see everything. If you're, if you're somewhere, you're missing stuff that that's on TV. You just can't consume it all. Like you can, if you're at the comfort of your own home, um, so, like, for example, I knocked out a Tennessee column on Rick Barnes after they beat Duke. I drive home. I had to pick up food. I walk in the door, and I see the final 40 seconds of Arkansas, Kansas. That's that's all I saw, admittedly. Um, unbelievable feat from us. I definitely 
did not make a list in my head of the funniest college hoops coaches to see shirtless after a big win. Uh, Jim Beheim was up there. If we're going active head coaches, he's not active anymore. I get that. Rick Pitino, he would make the cut. Bob Huggins going tarps off. That would be fantastic. Um, the, the list is long. Love that emotion afterwards from us. Love the emotion from Devo Davis. That is what March is all about, in my opinion. I get it. Kansas didn't have Bill Self. Still an unbelievable thing. Knock off the defending champs, who a lot of people are really high on, obviously. When that happened, though, Auburn was racing out to this double-digit lead against Houston, which I think anybody who watched Auburn this year was at least somewhat skeptical about holding that lead. I get it. It's in Birmingham. You're like, oh, my God, this is 2017 South Carolina all over again. They got that home game basically playing in Greenville in the second round against Duke. You're like, wow, South Carolina just really lucked out getting this draw. And it seemed like Auburn was going to be the team that was going to luck out getting that draw. But I think at the same time, like there was still that skepticism there. But you at least had to ask the question in that moment. You're thinking, wait, is the SEC about to knock off two one seats is that about to happen and i'm texting with you know my editor chris wright while all this is going on because he's telling me if this happens we got to react no conference has ever beaten two one seats in the same day the sec has only had three ncaa tournaments at which you beat multiple one seats this could have been arguably the biggest final non-final four day ever for sec basketball i mean that's what we were talking about so Add to it the fact that like Purdue already went down as a one seed. Bama was a significant favorite that night. And you're thinking like, wow, okay, the SEC has a chance to have a day. And obviously that didn't happen with the way it played out with Auburn, ultimate Jekyll and Hyde team. Um, but, but I still thought that on a day that set up really, really well for the SEC with five of the eight games, I guess six if you want to include future SEC team Texas, I thought it helped itself more than it hurt itself. And it hurt itself in the obvious way of like, you know, Mizzou losing to, to Princeton as a 15 seed. Although, I mean, that's, you want to talk about buzzsaws, Princeton is, Princeton's on one right now, having a moment. But two non-Kentucky SEC basketball teams took down Blue Bloods. And that was significant. Let me go back to that Duke-Tennessee game I was at because that was narrative changing stuff for Rick Barnes. I doubted. I doubted, I doubted. And in my defense, even Tennessee fans, I think you can admit that you doubted what it was going to look like against Duke. I looked this up because I kept thinking to myself, man, I, I know the stat about one sweet 16 trip in the last 14 years for Rick Barnes, but when was the last time that he had a really, really solid March win? And I was thinking about this before the game. Heading into Saturday, Rick Barnes hadn't beat a single digit seed in the NCAA tournament in 15 years think about that even if you win the eight nine game in the first round that's beating a single digit seed rick barnes had lost eight straight games against single digit seeds in the ncaa tournament so on top of that obviously like you know about the ziegler injury they hadn't really looked very good down the stretch you know the, the quarterfinal out against mizzou in the sec tournament take that for what it is but even that late game on Thursday night against Louisiana, I'm watching and thinking, man, they really let that team climb all the way back. Like they just don't really have that killer instinct. The scoring droughts, they're inevitable. It just feels like disappointment is just kind of waiting to happen. And especially against that Duke team who was playing so, so well. They had won 10 in a row. Their defense was playing lights out, was, was playing 
defensively at an even higher level than what Tennessee was doing, albeit against different competition. But with a healthy Derek Lively, that that team was just different. And they were feeling it. They really were. I mean, they were a popular pre-tournament Final Four pick. I mean, I think part of that was because of the doubt with Purdue. There was maybe a little bit of that doubt. Confirmation bias against a team like Marquette, who was, I think, to pick finish, what, like eighth in their own conference in the preseason. Um, There was at least some folks, I guess, calling for the 12 up. 12-5 12-5 upset with Earl Roberts, not very far removed from what they did two years ago until they ran into the buzzsaw that it was Arkansas. But what they did as a 15 seed had everybody kind of on high alert. And I even asked Barnes after the first round game what he knew about this Duke team, you know, knowing that that was going to be the matchup ahead, you know, limited time to be able to scout them, of course. He was like, yeah, not much. But I was watching Jim Beheim and Tony, Tony Kornheiser talk about them potentially winning a national championship. Didn't think we were going to get a Tony Kornheiser answer in that Rick Barnes um, response. But, um, okay, that's what we got. Uh, Tennessee was an underdog in that game. Don't care what the seed said. They were – I mean, Vegas said they were underdogs as well, so I'm not alone in saying that. But, man, they they showed up with some bad intentions for that fight. Maybe a little bit too bad. Um, shout out to, to Plossage, by the way. Uh, that's one of those guys where you can see him on TV – and think, wow, he's he's big. He's a big dude. And then you see him in person, and you're like, oh, my God, how are we the same species? Talk about that with Darnell Washington all the time. Like, okay, this this checks out. I kind of get it. He's a bully. Uh, he loves being the heel. He, he is. He's 100% the heel. And he definitely does dirty things, and they look even worse because I think he just blacks out sometimes because that's the only way he can play. He's not skilled um, in, in the way that you know some bigs are, and that's just what he has to do. And, yes, it's sometimes dirty. After the game, he's walking in the tunnel, and I'm like – I pull out my phone, and I'm like – I'm thinking I have video of him blowing kisses to the Duke fans who, by the way, are calling him every single name in the book – um, but I pulled the ultimate dad move and I realized I didn't get video. <laughs> I instead shifted my phone down before I could even capture it. Like that's how intimidating he is. Maybe I was fearing that I was going to be like that Kentucky reporter who had his phone taken, you know, with Muss and in that whole situation at the SEC tournament. Um, anyway, but I think Adu should be getting more of his minutes. I, I get the intimidation factor because in a game like that, Tennessee flexed its muscle in a big, big way. That felt like a football game. Uh, coming from a football guy, that that felt like a football game. And I was wondering early on, you know, how much of this is because I'm seeing it from right behind Kevin Harlan and Stan Van Gundy. And and I'm like, maybe this is I'm I'm I, I'm a little bit too close to it. This feels more physical. And then I check Twitter and everybody's like, yeah, this is <laughs> this is as physical as it gets. It definitely was. It felt like grown men on that Tennessee side and Duke who is tough in its own right and has been very blue collar down the stretch. Like all those freshmen and Roach though, I mean, who he got into foul trouble. They weren't ready for that. They weren't. And, and even though at Duke, they were right to feel confident. Like they, they really thought they were about to go on a deep run in March. And I, I mean, I think a lot of people were, I mean, Filipowski, that, that guy is a nice player. Tennessee had him all out of sorts and that was kind of the story of the day. And when Olivier comes in, plays game of his life, he said afterwards he was antsy because he barely played in the first half and he went off in the second half because he had fresh legs. Helped that Vescovy got rolling. That guy knows every trick in the book. Hopefully he didn't do a drinking game every time he cocked his head back when he was touched. If you do that while watching Tennessee basketball, you just black out every single game, a little bit like Plasic. Um, I would hate to officiate him. I would hate to guard him, but he makes a difference for that team. No denying that. 
He is a really good player. Uh, just a huge statement win. Huge, huge statement win that I, I did not think this version of Tennessee was capable of. In my opinion, like, not really an argument. Most impressive win of the Barnes era. And you get point. I, I get it. You know, he's beaten number one teams before. I mean, this team beat number one Alabama, a game that they were really impressive. But just the stakes to do it this way against that Duke team, it it felt it felt different. And I really think that the rest of this for Tennessee is kind of gravy. It kind of is. And I say that knowing the history. I say that knowing that the bracket opened up. For a team that's never been to the Final Four, when you see the bracket open up, you're like, oh, man. This this could happen. I mean, Purdue losing, coming from an unbiased Indiana grad. How can Matt Painter not be responsible for becoming the first coach to ever lose to three teams seated, what, 13 or worse? How can he not be responsible for that? Again, unbiased Indiana grad coming at you. Like we talk about with Barnes, though, like we can admit that you're really good at this while also acknowledging that in do or die situations, you clearly have some shortcomings. But now if you're Tennessee, you're looking at the bracket just going, man, wait. All we got to do is beat FAU and then the Michigan State, Kansas State winner. That's what we have to do to make our first Final Four. It sets up well. It really does. But go ask 2018 Kentucky about thinking you suddenly have that easy path to the Final Four. Speaking of Kentucky, the Cal Jimbo comps are still there. They're still there. That was a winnable game against Kansas State. Not trying to take anything away from them. Um, not sure you can really blast Cal for for Toppin and Reeves struggling the way that they did from the floor. Certainly better than the alternative, which was them losing to, to Hopkins and Providence in round one. So there's at least that. Um, still frustration. Still definite frustration from Kentucky fans. Those on the outside who just say, Kentucky fans are spoiled. I don't think they fully get it. I don't. I saw some of that on Twitter. Like, shut up and just appreciate it. You guys are crazy. So, like, they're just never allowed to be upset ever. This is this is just fine. This is just totally okay that Kentucky is, you know, struggling for basketball relevance in a way that it hasn't since uh, what, like last fifteen years. And we can say that at this point, Kentucky's not paying forty million bucks to fire Cal. The only way this ends is if Cal has has had enough. Um, he's got the number one recruiting class in America coming in, which is kind of the the saving grace a little bit, the, the silver lining. So in other words, like, he's not walking away right now. This does, however, now feel like, okay, if this next group can't get Kentucky back to that national relevance, I think both parties will recognize that they need to find a way to end this. And I believe that that could be the case. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't. Seeing the post-game locker room with Shibwe and his back turned, just devastated, man. Like, just devastated. You're reminded, like, we say this every year, but this tournament is just so ruthless. And you see it just all over these kids and these coaches, their their face. Like, I saw the way that Virginia Furm, the Virginia Furman game played out. Kia Clark, who made arguably the best pass in Virginia history for that title team in 2019, when he helped Virginia beat Purdue in the Elite Eight, and then he does that that play, that pass against Furman was just like that happens in a matter of seconds, and UVA just blows it. And I asked Tony Bennett, who was pretty stunned afterwards, like I thought we had it. I just I thought we had it. I asked him afterwards, like why didn't you call a timeout? And even he is who's as composed as it gets. And Tony Bennett, I mean, he says everything with a smile on his face. You just can't hate. He's impossible to hate. Like. 
he he admitted, yeah, should have called a timeout. Things just happen so fast this time of year, and then boom, it's over. Uh, just like that. That game, as much as anything, just kind of made you feel like that. And if you haven't if you haven't been a team in that spot yet, this tournament, and your team is advancing to the Sweet 16, consider yourself lucky. Alabama so far has been that team. Maryland got off to a nice start, definitely did. But at no point in the second half was that game in doubt. Uh, Brandon Miller got rolling after just a total dud in the round of 64. Uh, and I know Nate, Nate Oates said that he's been dealing with a groin injury. I'll say this on, on that. Uh, I'm not calling Nate Oates a liar. But if we found out that maybe he floated that into the universe just so that he could kind of have a fallback these last couple weeks to protect him on those nights where maybe Brandon Miller doesn't have it. I wouldn't be stunned. And I don't even think that's, that's not crazy. Wouldn't be the first coach. Wouldn't be the last coach to kind of protect a guy by doing that. Um, Because honestly, like you watch Brandon Miller, the athleticism is still there for a guy that's dealing with a groin injury. He doesn't really look that limited in Oates. Like he said, he was playing through it in the SEC tournament when he was unbelievable. So look, like the guy's still jumping out of the gym. I take it for what it is. Arm security for the NCAA tournament is a lot. If this entire situation was impacting him mentally for his involvement on that fatal night and the way that people feel about him, I, I don't think that would be surprising. And at the same time, Bama had the opening weekend that every top seed kind of hopes and prays for. They just beat you in so many ways. Like when Quinterly is rolling like that, Betty Ako is is doing all the dirty work around the rim. Just, just forget about it. I'll say this though. I saw San Diego State in person twice. They are going to try and follow that Tennessee game plan. They want to play bully ball. And trust me when I say this team has some grown dudes on the interior. Even their 6'4 guy, Bradley, he looks like an edge rusher. Man, that dude is yoked. This team is old. They're going to you know, try and slow the tempo. They're going to try and, and get those high percentage looks, and they'll drive right at anyone. They don't care who you are. They're going to go right at the teeth of Bediaco. That's that's what they're going to do. They close out so well on those threes, too. We know Bama likes to be able to put up those threes. Not saying that San Diego State wins. Don't get it twisted, but I will not be surprised if that's a 60-minute dogfight. That is a really, really tough team, and Bama's going to have to be at its absolute best to be able to pull that one out. Um, what else? Um, we're we're going to get to some more things in, in bold and brash in a minute here, but on kind of a personal note, I was fired up that Duke was in Orlando because growing up, John Shire was a legend in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. I wrote about this for Saturday Road, so apologies if you've read or heard me say this before, but the two athletes who were larger than life in the suburbs of Chicago around when I was growing up, Tommy Zimkowski, who went to my high school and went to Notre Dame, did the boxing thing for a little bit, and then Shire. Shire, I always tell people, best high school basketball player I ever saw, best middle school basketball player I ever saw, too. I remember being in sixth grade. My brother was in seventh grade. His game finished, and everyone was like, hey, we got to go to the other side of the school uh, at Glenbrook North. I think it was at Glenbrook North High School, yeah. And we got to see the eighth grade game because this John Shire kid is playing, and he's the real deal. And in this packed gym, I remember hit 31 points and a half, which is like impossible to do with six minute quarters. Um, even more impossible was what he did his senior year at Glenbrook North. Shout out Ferris Bueller's day off. He dropped 21 points, 75 seconds. Um, 
just YouTube it. If you want to see it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So on Wednesday, um, I got to ask him about that. And I told him that I remember being in high school, reading that headline in the daily Herald, of the local newspaper, just kind of in disbelief. And he asked me what suburb I was from, told him Buffalo Grove. And then he's like, Oh yeah, we played them. I was like, Oh yeah, I know my brother guarded you and you dropped 30 on him. <laughs> Fun little back and forth to be able to have with the new Duke head coach who was much more likable than the last Duke head coach. That's not even really up for debate. Fun back and forth that 14-year-old Connor would have kind of freaked out about. 32-year-old Connor is trying not to freak out about the fact that his alma mater just had its best player since Calvert Chaney and his career without a Sweet 16 appearance. And I use lottery pick point guard Jalen Huchifinos probably off to the NBA as well. Not trying to freak out about that. Miami's guards are just so good. So freaking good. Give me great guard play above all else this time of year. How many times do we sell ourselves on these elite teams centered around a big man in recent memory, making a deep March run only to watch guys like Edie and Shibwe and Kofi, Kofi Coburn, DeAndre Ayton, all these guys like have these early round struggles and you watch their teammates and their teammates just look like they're standing around waiting for them to do everything. And that's just not the way that it works this time of year. And, you know, I, I picked UCLA to win it all, not because I think they're the best team in the country. And I honestly don't even think they're going to win it all. I wouldn't bet on that necessarily, even though I guess I did. I just think that Jaime Hawkes, Tiger Campbell, they're so smart in these late game situations. And you just feel like they're always going to do the right thing. And if I'm going to bet on a team to win a national championship, I want to feel good in these late game spots. My team with a true freshman point guard who is immensely talented, didn't have those great decision-making moments in winning time, and it kind of showed. Not going to lie, I was pretty bummed. I was pretty bummed on Sunday night. Not as bummed as 2013 when I watched Indiana lose to Syracuse as a one seed. Again, how did Tom Crean, you know, like how did he not know that Syracuse was going to play that zone? Uh, I guess it was their first time busting that out that weekend. Um, I was about as emotionally invested in any team as I've been since maybe like 2017 Cubs after they won it all and it hurt but it was fun to care about something it's fun to care I admittedly forget that in this job and that's that's why I like having Will's presence on here so much is because Will really cares and like you might not always agree with Will's takes you might not always agree with my takes but I love the fact that Will cares and he's emotionally invested and sometimes I need to check myself on that and I remind myself how I feel in these moments because I don't have time for regular season MLB or NBA anymore. Like even the bears I'm invested, but I'm not watching all of those games. Cause I like, I live here. I'm not getting like NFL Sunday tickets to be able to do it. It's just not really in the cards. And I say this now, and I know once our baby's born, my ability to care about a team as a fan will probably take another significant hit. So it was fun to care. It was fun to care. And I don't want to care to the level of the kids sitting right behind me watching Duke all weekend. There's probably a balance there. I was convinced that I was sitting behind SJ from the blind side. I was going to turn around. I was going to see that nine-year-old kid. And I know SJ is all grown up now, so that's a dumb thing to say. But you get what I'm saying. I've heard plenty of heckling during games, tons of heckling. This nine-year-old just would not stop. Every call against Duke was a war crime. Every time Duke got touched around there, like got touched basically at any point in the half court and there wasn't a call, his life was over. I'm not one to tell another parent how to do their job because his dad, or at least the guy that I assume was his dad was doing plenty of the, the heckling on his own. But at one point, like the three or four people I was sitting next to on media row were like, what if we all just turned around and just stared at this kid and his dad to make them think twice. That's all I want. I just want them to think twice. 
just just a look that says, hey, you're ruining this for everyone. You know that, right? Like you, you're clearly the loudest, most demonstrative one here. And that's saying something. And I developed a little bit of a soft spot for Duke with the Shire deal. And then that kid changed things for me. So back to back to regular unbiased media coverage. At one point, this this kid started ripping the ref for being bald. New rule. When you're nine, no receding hairline jokes. Also, when you're nine and your team makes an and one, you don't get to then heckle seven footers upset about a foul call and then tell them that's how real men play basketball. Out of context, text, like actually kind of thinking about this now, this kid might have actually had a stand-up career. I think just the way that he was presenting it was wrong. But in context, he was the worst. Care, just don't be that kid. And that was my weekend of basketball. Before I kick it to Matt Hayes, a quick word from our friends at Underdog. As you know, if you listen to this podcast, which you should subscribe to this podcast, listen every single episode. But if you know and you listen to this, you know sports betting, not legal in a bunch of SEC states, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, most of the SEC states, you cannot gamble on sports. But Underdog Fantasy has you covered. You might have tried Daily Fantasy in the past, but Underdog is a new platform that's extremely popular right now. And they have some awesome contests where you can compete for real money. It is a great way to scratch that sports betting itch. We have an exclusive arrangement with Underdog. If you go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash Underdog, you can automatically double your deposit when you join. Sign up, throw in 50 bucks. They'll throw in 50 more dollars. It is a great way to get some money to play in these contests. You can pick higher or lower for different players. Really, really similar to sports betting player props. And yes, you can put real money on the line. This is legal and live in all of those SEC states where sports betting is not legal. Underdog is awesome. It is super fun to do while you're watching any sport at home. But if you're watching March Madness, like my bracket's busted. I've ripped this thing into sh- into smithereens. Get over to Underdog. They're going to hook you up. They're going to make it a more enjoyable march for you, and you can make some real money by doing it. Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. Take advantage of our promo where underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. $100 absolutely free. That is SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. All right, let's kick it to Matt Hayes. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Matt Hayes. Matt, we're uh, we're talking spring football storylines today. Before we do that, let me let me get an over under uh over under one and a half hours of hoops that you watched over the weekend. Oh, over. Okay. All right. You dialed into it. Oh yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, I like the tournament. And okay. not because I'm a DJ, I just like it. <laughs> I mean, it's fun. I look, look, and, and I argue about this all the time with my good friend Mike DeCursi over at uh, Sporting News. Yep. And he's you know, he's a college basketball guy through and through. He loves it, he bleeds it, and I respect the hell out of that. Um, but I always tell them, look, it's it's a one month season, you know, and I know it. they played for four or five months, but no one really zeroes in until the tournament starts. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's it's the greatest month in sports. So, I mean, nothing wrong with that at all. It's just, uh, you know, it's what it is. And that's I mean, that's why I mean, honestly, that's why you have a separate deal uh, for the tournament. That's why. When you start talking about conference expansion, you start talking about media rights deals. That's why it's all driven by football. It's football true. Driver, yeah. It's true. I, I think there are intriguing things to see a packed house for a an early February game and what that means to a TV contract, like why that would appeal to ESPN when they're like, sure. crap, we don't have any other programming going on. It's content. On. It's, it's content. 
it's great content. And like, right. if you can get a piece of that, 100%. And I think that's why there's some urgency, especially right now, for a lot of these teams to kind of figure it out on the hoop side. Is, there, is these contracts are being negotiated? The SEC is going to renegotiate with Texas, Oklahoma, all that stuff. Right. But it is interesting from, from that standpoint as well. And it's like, it's a one-month season. And people like us, who like consume football for – 11 and a half months of the year, whatever you want to call it. Like we take this little break into college basketball. It's what we do. Do you have a national championship pick? Can I ask you that? Uh, you're not going to believe what I picked. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Man. Man. Oh, yeah. Do you have I Arkansas? Had, no, I had Zach Eady. I had Zach Eady in Purdue, man. <laughs> I figured this was it, man. This was it. I figured it was one of those Virginia things, you know, that, you know, they had, they had you know, they got knocked out in the last two years by 12 and 13 that this was going to be the year. And, my good friend Adam Leahy, who lives up in Indianapolis, he's a diehard Purdue fan. Just man, I feel bad for him right now. I really, really feel because this is, and again, you're watching that game and Purdue's just chucking it. They're just chucking it outside the outside the perimeter. They got a guy who's seven four, and and Fairly Dickinson's tallest guy is like six five, maybe. Shortest team in the country. Four and a half. Shortest team in the country. I don't care. He's getting quadruple team. Get him the ball. They'll foul him. He'll shoot free throws. It's not that difficult. Yeah. It's literally not that difficult, man. I I uh, I apologize to everyone across the southeast because I think they heard me cackling on Friday night as I'm watching that play out. I have never seen that play out where a team crapped the bed so much around a guy, and by the end of that game, none they they had one guy on the floor who wanted to shoot the ball. Everybody else was hot potato. Do get this, get this out of my hands. I did yeah, not. I mean, want to, to be fair, anything. Zach, he didn't want to shoot it either. True, he got timid quick, man. It, it was bizarre. They played so well in the Big Ten season, and to play like that in the in a first round game against a wildly outman team was just bizarre. By the way, one of my other picks was Arizona, so they uh, both hate to see it I on won. the Purdue side. Hate to see it. Just yeah, tragic. It was. It. Um, okay, spring football. It is here, sort of. There is Graham Mertz buzz out of Gainesville. Uh, call it what you will. We'll call it buzz. Uh, after his arrival, Billy Napier said some nice things about the way that he started off. He's like, ah, you can tell the guy is he started 32 games. We've talked a little bit off the record about Graham Mertz. Um, I know how I feel when I hear those things said. And if I hear positive things said about Mertz before he plays the down to meaningful football, how do you feel when you hear positive spring buzz about Graham Mertz? I mean, it's great if you're a Florida fan. It's great to hear that. It gives you something to hold on to. Um, I just go back to to Paul Chris, who everybody I talk to in the coaching community loves him, says says he's a great quarterback coach, like a guy that develops quarterbacks. Currently? He's a like, like in the 2020s, not like the 2010s, no, like holding on to right, Russell Wilson? No, right now. Okay. Right now. Like last year when Caleb Williams was going to go transfer from Oklahoma, he was down to USC, Georgia, and Wisconsin because Paul Chris got Russell Wilson developed and ready to go in that one transfer year. And because of his reputation, he's got a terrific reputation as a quarterback developer and a guy that knows how to get quarterbacks ready to play, okay? Now, basically, I mean, you could say it's, it's bad. to say, Graham Mertz basically got him fired. Because and it's Paul Chris' fault because he's he stuck with him too long. Yeah, stuck with him, you know, for for three years, and he didn't have another guy ready to go. You can make the same argument about Scott Frost with Adrian Martinez, stuck with him too long. One hundred percent. 
so there, there there are situations like that all the time. It's just it's bizarre to me that a guy that had seven touchdowns and no interceptions in his first two games just literally went to nothing after that. Went to a guy that was almost even touchdowns and interceptions. And you're in a on a team that and here's another thing too, you have to understand too, Connor, is they run the ball really well at Wisconsin. So he's constantly throwing off play action. So he's going to get linebackers cheating. He's going to get safeties cheating. He's going to get open windows. He completed 55% of his passes. That's number one. Number two, in the last four years, that Wisconsin defense, I think three of the four years, they were in the top 10. So it's not like he had a bad defense backing him up either. It was all set up for them to really have a nice run the last couple of years, and they didn't. And they didn't because of the quarterback. Now, it might change. Graham Mertz might be a completely different player at Florida. And, you know, here we go. But I will say this. Florida wants to run the ball. Florida's offensive line is their strength again this year. Their running backs are the strength again this year. They're going to run the ball. They're going to throw off play action. The only difference is that defense that Florida has, not going to be as good as that Wisconsin defense the last three years. So he starts making mistakes like he makes at Wisconsin. It's going to compound for Florida. I keep wondering what the best version of Mertz is. Like, is there a comp? And there, there definitely is. Recent memory, guy who was multi-year starter at a program, was not really impressive as a starter, who then left and then became a good starter elsewhere. And the, I guess the current example, like Hendon Hooker. I mean, that's that's kind of the guy, but you know, even he had like, you know, he had so far away from Hendon Hooker. It's not even funny. Yeah, exactly. So I don't even like in, and even kind of his, his arc and like what he went through throughout his career, like that's not even a fair comp. It's really not, but what would be Mertz working out? Is it like Felipe? That's a great question, man. Um, Felipe Franks at Arkansas. That's what we're talking about. Uh, I think he was pretty important in 2020. Yeah, that's not bad. I mean, that's not bad. That's, I mean, if you're thinking about it, that might be like the closest. Oh, man, I don't know. I, that's probably the closest you can, because the reality is he's, I'm looking at it from his last year point of view, what he's going to do at Florida. I'm not looking at it from the first three years where you're kind of like iffy. I, I don't know, man. I, I can't, Franks is probably a really good one, actually. I, I mean, God, who was the kid at Michigan? Will Speak. Oh yeah, going, or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He ended yeah, up going to uh, ended up going to UCLA, but he didn't, he got hurt at UCLA in like third game or something like that. Then didn't end up playing. They're very similar type players. Jack Cohn. Oh, I got that? one. Ruddick. Ruddick. The get it was Harbaugh. Jake Rudock. Jake Rudock goes yeah, from Rudock. Michigan. To, uh, yeah, yeah, or yeah, Goes yeah. from Iowa to, to, Iowa to Michigan. Michigan. Yeah, but okay. again, didn't play that well at Michigan, and was kind of you know, eh, at Iowa. He was. I, he was he was pretty good in 2015. He was actually pretty good, like all things considered, for what was expected of that Michigan offense, which was in total rebuild mode. Year one of the Harbaugh era, it I mean, wasn't like they had a bunch of playmakers on the outside. Right, he did play well. I think he was like 21 seven touchdown interception, yeah. something like that. Okay, yeah, I think he's right. He did play pretty well. Okay, yeah, I like that one. Um, Jack Cohn going from Wisconsin to Notre Dame, maybe that's one. I uh, I don't know, like. That's kind of if, if Florida gets that. If Florida gets Jack Cohn at Notre Dame, they'd be doing backflips. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. He had like 30 touchdowns that year, didn't he? I don't know if it was that high. Wasn't that high? 
he had a really good year, yeah, like a really good year. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's this working in my opinion. And like, that's expectations need to be tempered no matter what, that would be a considerable success. I say that's the ceiling. I think there's a much, much lo- lower floor, Uh very different conversation over at Georgia. Carson Beck, what are the odds that he isn't Georgia's starting quarterback and a beefed up Brock Vandegrift, which we found out during camp, he's even put on even more muscle, which Dude, I don't know if he needs to like lay off the weights. I thought he was already big enough. But what is what are the odds that he splitting ones with Carson Beck wins the starting job? Who knows? I mean, with Kirby, honestly, in quarterbacks, who knows? Uh, I will say this. He was the number two guy in 2021. He was the backup when JT Daniels got on the field and then JT got hurt and they panicked and said, you know what? We know what we have with Stetson. Let's go with him. And Stetson took it. So, I mean, it's it's. Was it 21 or 20? 21. 21, where, where Beck is 21. the backup, yeah, are you saying? Or are you 21. saying Vandegrift? No, 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 no. Carson Beck was the backup. He yeah, won yeah. the backup job. And he was, and from what I've been told, he was told he was going to start that game. And then they panicked and said, no, we know what we got with Stetson. Go with him. And then Stetson seized the opportunity and went. So, I don't, I mean, that kid can, he can make every throw. He's a tall quarterback, pro-style quarterback. He's got some pretty good athletic ability too. I, I would be shocked if he's not their quarterback. Shocked. I would too. But I mean, if, if Vandegrift goes out and just blows everybody away, there you go. I think it's telling that they threw so much with Beck when he came in during during garbage time last year. And they they really wanted to see what they had with him. Whereas you look at Vandegrift's reps, and it's like they're they're few and far between and they're giving him handoffs now like take that for what it is that's just the pecking order stuff but like and i'm not saying that beck absolutely did enough to cement himself as a starter the comp that i always make to that is limited sample size do what you absolutely can with it 2019 mac jones did that to be able to win the job at alabama going into 2020 replace Tua. i don't think beck is in that situation but i agree with you i'd be surprised and all the the kirby down the middle stuff that we're going to hear throughout the, this off season has reminded me how much I miss the Kirby quarterback battle and why we just uh, need that every year. He, I, I mean, that's how he gets them ready to play, man. He wants them focused throughout the summer. I get all that. I get all that. But if you look at Beck, he's the perfect Mike Bobo quarterback. He's Aaron Murray. Um, he's David Green. The, the similar type players of he can make every throw. He's a smart guy, high football IQ, um, deceptive athletic ability. I mean, if they get anything close to what Aaron Murray gave them under Bobo, golly, they'll kill people this year. Okay, so let me ask you that. We've got 10 new offensive coordinators in the SEC, Bobo being one of them. Um, They're all going to get offseason buzz that things are really going well. We're picking – you know, everybody's just dissecting the offense. We're going to be so much more explosive. We're going to do this, this, and this. Um, Which one of these new offensive coordinators are you most likely to buy into if and when you start hearing those good things? Like, I know you're already high on Bobo. We're going to probably argue about that. Uh, Liam Cohen, good-looking dude, some might say. Um, Love Liam Cohen. Dan Enos. He's your doppelganger. He he is, yes, very much so. Uh, Philip Montgomery, Montgomery maybe, little Uh, Tommy Reese. Yeah, I like Monty. I mean, I think Monty did a pretty good job of Tulsa. It's hard to win there. He was really good at Baylor. He was – he was part of that Art Bryles, Kendall Bryles offense. I mean, it was it was Art and Monty originally. So yeah, I think I think he'll have a nice. He's a nice fit there. 
we did a, uh, a coordinator draft a few weeks ago and I'll forgive you if you're like a, a download, but don't listen to, to mm-hmm. the Saturday on South podcast guy. Um, <laughs> take, take a guess. Religiously. <laughs> Look, we got, we got important people who have reached out and they'll, they'll call me out on some stuff every once in a while. I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't yeah. doubt it. Uh, okay. So we had a coordinator draft, offensive coordinator draft. Um, take a guess who went number one overall. No, Petrino, I'm sure. You're right. Okay, so you listened. You heard. No, no, I didn't hear that. But I, I mean, how could it not be Petrino? He's phenomenal. I, I'm look. That's not what I'm arguing about. I think he's an unbelievable coach. And you would talk about a quarterback coach. My God, I mean, Connor Wigman, like, really got lucky. Okay, all that's. I'm not arguing at all about that. All I'm saying is those are two massive egos in one program, Jimbo and Bob Petrino. Can it work? I don't know. If it doesn't work, it's going to be just one spectacular fail. It'll be brutal. It'll be Petrino being the interim coach by like week 10. It's going to be just, no. I'm kidding when I say that, but it, <laughs> if, it, if it doesn't work, it'll be a one and done. And, and I mean, a will be like five and seven again, but, but the, the ceiling for that, honestly, I mean, Connor Wigman's got talent, man. He, I think he's going to be really good. And the jump he's going to make from year one to year two, I think he's going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the league, top three or four quarterback in the league next year. So especially if everything works with Petrino, he might even be in the top three. Um, if it works and everything connects, AM could, I mean, they can win 10, 11 games. Easy. Oh, there you go. There They're you talented, go, Matt. man. Dude, they are talented on D. Their offensive line is solid. They've got a lot of speed at the skill positions. And now Wiegman. And now Wiegman's got a guy that knows how to coach quarterbacks. No offense to Jimbo, but Jimbo's kind of, you know, I don't know what was going on the last three or four years of Jimbo coaching quarterbacks, which is what he does. I mean, that's his calling card. But now it's, you know, Jimbo, go over there and do whatever you got to do. I'm going to take care of the quarterbacks. I'm going to call plays. I'm going to coordinate the offense. And, right. But- I mean, let's see if Jimbo can go over there and do what he wants to do without sneaking back over and saying, hey, uh, let's try and run this real quick because Bob's not going to put up with that. No way. No way, man. There's no way. He will not put up with Jimbo coming back in and meddling in the offense. No way. Right before we got on, I was reading, uh, I was reading Texags. They had uh the the comments from Jimbo's uh, I, I think it was his first press. I love this. They just live and die with the ax, man. <laughs> Shout out so, Billy. It's so good. Shout out Billy. Shout out my guy David Newton. Shout out to Billy, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, so they had like the, you know, the presser that they're breaking down. And of course, like Jimbo's getting a bunch of questions about, about right. Petrino. Cause like, that's the most intriguing storyline. Not even close. Terrible question. <laughs> I can was hear it, it right now. Wasn't going there yet, but you can tell, like, he's not, let's say this. You listen to certain head coaches with their new hires and right. they empower them. And Jimbo is not doing that yet. He's not. And look, I think it's fascinating either way, because if they take off and this ends up being what you said, 10, 11 wins, I'm not going there. I think they should be the most improved team in the SEC. (laughs) The only way to go is up when you go five and seven. But if you get this 10 and 11 win version of this team, right? Is Jimbo handing out credit all like, all over the place. Is that is because that would even be entertaining in its own right. That's going to be a tough lift right there, man. For Jimbo to give somebody else credit for that offense, because by doing that, he's saying I screwed up the last three years. Yep. So yeah, I, I, that's going to be a heavy lift, man. 
for him to do that, for him to say, yeah, boy, what a hire with Bob Petrino, huh? Bob's doing a great job. <laughs> Can't wait for it. I, I got a feeling that you're going to hit like week two or three and Jim was going to start talking about a collaborative. It's a collaborative effort, you know. Who's calling plays after they score 14 points against like right. Mizzou or something like that's that? Bob. That's a Bob. Yeah, <laughs> I talked to Bob about that. <laughs> uh, another coordinator uh, that's very, very much under the radar nationally. Georgia folks obviously love this guy. We should be talking about the Glenn Schumann contract. That to me was telling. Defensive play caller for Georgia. Right. Think about this. If you had said a couple years ago, hey, there's a guy on Georgia's defensive staff who isn't Kirby, a defensive staff that has Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp. And there's another guy, a third guy, making $1.9 million per year. Like, that to me, I would have been like, whoa, wait, what? this guy must be the up-and-comer. Um, it's kind of wild to just think about that. And obviously, like, there's the Dan Lanning comps that, that are going to come kind of in that role. Right. What do you make of his value and kind of his future? Uh, I think his value was significantly impacted when Alabama came after him. That's what I think his value is. And I think that's probably what Kirby said, look, just stay here and I'll double your contract or whatever it was. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll get it pushed through. And, you know, Georgia's at the point now where Georgia will do anything right now for that football program, anything. <laughs> Their recruiting bug is just ridiculous. Um, you know, they, they're, you know, the, the new building they opened, the football building, and it's fantastic. So they'll do anything. And, and why wouldn't you? You're back-to-back national champions. You're the favorite to win it again. The only thing that's going to keep them from the playoff is a colossal a colossal failure because look at the schedule, man. Who's going to beat them? I mean, I guess Tennessee could at home, right? I guess that's possible. I mean, you know, we'll see what Joe Milton does or if he can hold off uh, Nico. But, I mean, who's going to beat Georgia right now? So they should be in the playoff. They should be at it, at it with an opportunity to win three in a row. Three in a row, man. In this era where, you know, you can you can get good quick and you can change the narrative quick, they just keep grinding and rolling and rolling and rolling. I think it's interesting that it's also the same amount of money that Kevin Steele's making in Alabama. I don't think that's a coincidence. It might have been that. I mean, it, it very easily could – Kirby could have easily said, look, whatever Kevin Steele makes, you're going to make. Could Which, easily be that. Yeah. But – Alabama came after him. They wanted him. And, you know, if you're Georgia, what do you do? No choice. No choice. Keep continuity. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. ODB, cost of doing business, baby. Yeah. Um, Not sure if you saw this, but Harold Perkins went from wearing number 40 to number four. He already looks faster, um, which is just somehow impossible. Uh, not going to ask you about that. <laughs> the only way he could possibly look faster if he was number one. If he's number yeah. one, he's the fastest guy in the field. I don't know. Four is pretty fast, too. Like, he's that's a slimming number. I don't know. Like, four he's is pretty good. Looking the part. Yeah, because eight, he's not, he's not fast at eight or nine. No, yeah. Even I seven, mean, even that famous seven L. He's not fast doing that either. He's going to change his number all, all three years. Three, probably. maybe. Yeah. All three. Be good. The old Dale Earnhardt connection there. Yeah. Okay. I like that. That makes sense. It works in the SEC. Yeah. It does. SEC speed. <laughs> Harold yeah, Perkins yeah, yeah, yeah. had it before <laughs> and after. Um, have you talked to anybody about him? Because I, I think I think behind Brock Bowers, I, I'm probably going to have him as my number two player in the SEC coming back uh, this year. But have you have you had those conversations yet? I know you do a lot of columns in which you're talking to scouts, you're talking to people at the next level. Is he somebody that's already uh, well, on their? I, I can't tell you which SEC coach I talked to. 
But I talked to one almost two weeks ago. Best player in the league, they said. Better than Bowers? Best player in the league. Player in the league. Hmm. We're going, we're going there already. Okay. Well, I mean, think about his last four games. Yeah. Think about the Arkansas game. He owns Arkansas, the state. I mean, he, I mean, he even played well against Georgia, played really well against Georgia. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, he's, I don't know how you can't compare him to Will Anderson right now. Different size, different type player, but similar off the edge disruptor, similar guy that's going to get to the quarterback, that's going to get tackles for loss, that's going to, that's going to create turnovers, that's going to create big plays, similar type of player like that. If so, you're if you're if you're drafting in the SEC right now, okay, you can take one player. Who are you taking? Just for this season, right? Yeah, just this season. I'm still going Bowers. I I think Bowers is is just such a game changer. Like it, it changes your entire defense. The fact that he also blocks too, and he's not just some pass catching tight end, and he has a passion for that. You can move him all around the formation. You can line him up in the freaking backfield and hand yeah. it off to him. I mean, yeah. you could do the old Satterfield special with Jaheim Bell and just give him handoffs if you can't throw the ball to him. Um, look, I'd have, but I'd think about it a little bit, but I'd still go Bowers one, and then I'd probably go Perkins too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at him. He's, I mean, that's just year one with him too. That's year one, the disrupt dis- disruption that he gave in year one. Imagine what year two is going to be. Like the big jump is always year one to year two. Like he's going to be ridiculous in year two. And then year three, it'll be, I don't want to get hurt. And, you know, the production will go down and he'll stay not getting hurt. And he'll opt out early and you know, how it works. Yeah, yeah true. Okay. Fourth overall pick or whatever it is. Yeah, that's what will happen. So Sam Pittman said he's the best player in the SEC. Gotcha. Gotcha. I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I did not say that. Uh, I maintain the belief that Quinn Ewers with with that full healthy offseason, which, you know, we'll we'll see if he gets that. Mm -hmm. I think he's going to have a great opportunity to be a star at Texas. I'm still, I I have not sold my Quinn Ewers stock. I had him to, to win the Heisman last year. He gets hurt, doesn't necessarily come back looking like the same exact guy. Not now. I think it's if if he gets hurt or struggles out of the gate, that opens the door up for Arch. That that does. Like we hear Sark say in the spring, this is a QB battle. You know, he's going to play it down the middle, or whatever. Some interpreted that as like, oh, Arch is going to win this job. I'd be stunned if that happened because I think people overestimate true freshmen starting from the jump and don't realize right. how rare that is. Yeah. What do you say about that? Well, I love we're talking about Texas, and hopefully soon we'll talk about Oklahoma. And I think I'm going to start beginning in April. I'm going to start adding Texas and Oklahoma to first and 10 every week. Love it. Like one little spot for Texas and Oklahoma just to get everybody fired up and ready to go for 2024. Um, Here's the thing with with Quinn Ewers. We heard he was this generational guy, remember? He was the rare type guy that you're going to go in there. He's going to start, you know, game one and, you know, away you go. Like a Trevor Lawrence type player, Deshaun Watson type player. Um, How much generational have you seen from him? I saw and, and the first quarter against Bama. I saw that entire Oklahoma game. I actually, he wasn't even that good against Oklahoma. Like he was good, but he wasn't like, I, I thought it early on against Bama. You you go back and you look at some of those early throws. on before he got hurt. He made some nice plays. Um, I just don't know. I don't, I haven't seen it consistently, obviously. All right. 
So your question is, you know, is it possible that Arch could play? Yeah, I think Arch could definitely play. I do. I, I think if 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 Quinures gets in this rut, and again, he's really in year two too. I know he redshirted. So he's in his year two of playing too. So it's going to grow for him as well too this year. But if he struggles a little bit and Texas starts out two and one or two and two, well, he, I could easily see Arch playing easily, especially if he's ready. We don't know if he's going to be ready. We don't know how he's going to adjust. But if he's ready to play, like if, if Sark goes in the season, the first thing he says at going into week one is I got two quarterbacks can play. Arch is going to play if if Quinn Ewers struggles at all. What if he just pulls like the first half, just absolute dud? I I don't even know who Texas's week one opponent is, but I know that they got Bama in week two, so it's it's it should be a favorable matchup. And then just right. going in, <laughs> Arch ends up taking over, and then his first career start is at Bama. What it. What an incredible storyline that that's not going to happen, but that would be one of those stunning things. I mean, you never know. By the way, what happens in, in, in 24 when it's a nine game schedule and are we starting out with SEC games week one? Is that what's going to happen? Are we still still going with Charleston Southern and and Kent state and an occasional. We, We need, we need to get that. Like say what you want about the big 10. I've talked about how the big 10 went to the nine game conference schedule way too early. They cannibalize themselves. One of the things that the big 10 does well is they set up those conference matchups to start. And if you're going to have any sort of competition in week one, which some teams do it, some teams don't do it. Why not have it be conference play? Like, sorry, it feels more significant when you have Purdue playing Penn state in that game to start off the year when you have Ohio state starting off, they've started, they used to start off against like Indiana, which was at one point kind of a tricky matchup that they would somehow never lose. But like these matchups would be, would be great. I absolutely think that should be part of the deal. How about like in week one, if Ohio state plays in Gainesville and if LSU plays at Michigan and if USC plays at Alabama and if UCLA plays at Tennessee, how about if you have like a little big 10 sec challenge? Every yeah. first week of every season, the two best the two best conferences in college football. Every week one of every season, you have a little challenge. 16 versus 16. Here's how you do it, too. You market it as the big two challenge. Send a big oh. old message to you everybody. Can do, yeah, you can, I mean, it's the just. The big two challenge. Can you, I mean, imagine, like, the, the money that could be made off that thing. Imagine, it's not even really just the money, but imagine just, like, the. Look, this I always say this about the NFL. No one owns the calendar year quite like the NFL. Every month of this of the year, they have something going on. Free agency, the draft, whatever, whatever, uh, mini mini camps, uh, you know, OTAs, everything. There's always something going on. Imagine having this 16 versus 16 as week one, but here's how you do it, man. You have like a little lottery in April, and that's when you choose the games every year. And it's based on the records of the previous year. And you do like little balls, just like the NBA, the NBA lottery. You have a little lottery. Imagine that two or three hour show on ESPN or Fox, wherever you have it. I mean, you can swap years each time, whatever. Imagine that show and the interest that would garner. Once you set up those games, you will be talking about those games for a month. Easy. A month. None of this neutral it. stuff either. None of this neutral field stuff. It's all campus sites, all of it. I love it. Here's your problem, though, and here's why you're going to get pushback. 
when an athletic director is just sitting there twiddling their thumbs in the middle of June and they're thinking, what can I do to make a headline? I know I'm going to call and I'm going to set up this matchup through 2036. You got to give them something to do. If they can't do that, what are they going to do in the middle of June? man? Oh, if they're worried about money, like forget about, <laughs> forget about money, man. You're going to get money. You're, you're going to get money in the long run from the marketing of it. You're going to get money in the long run from future media rights deals. You can get a title sponsor brought to you by AT&T. How much AT&T, would AT&T pay for that? Sell it, sell it as a standalone to Apple TV. Sell it, sell it as a standalone to Amazon. The thing is, is you've got to have the you've got to have the ability of the presidents, the two conferences to work together, which means the conference commissioners have to work together. And when Kevin Warren was there, there was no way that was happening, especially after he nixed the non-conference games in the COVID year, then tried to scuttle the entire season. That ended any kind of working relationship between Sankey and, and Warren. Now, if Big Ten hires someone that can work works well with Greg Sankey, who knows, man? Look, there are worse ideas, okay? Yeah. To market those two conferences, which are clearly going to be the two conferences moving forward. I like it. We a big the big two challenge, something marketed around that. And instead of the alliance, which failed, lived way too short of a life, we call it the marriage with the new Big Ten commissioner <laughs> and Sankey. That's look, monogamous. We're, we can make this work. I, I think we have the pieces in place. You want to move the calendar in the college football offseason, buddy. Let me tell you about the marriage. Like a reality TV show? Come on. I don't think I, don't think I haven't thought this out, man. And, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm already going to text Sankey and tell him I want 3% when he does make it happen. Because he will make it happen. Eventually, he's going to think, all right, this is the smart thing to do. I'd watch it. I'd absolutely love it. All right, speaking of TV stuff, ESPN, they're only going to broadcast one spring game on their main airwaves. It's not Alabama. It's not Georgia. Colorado. It's Colorado, man. It's, it's Dion. Oh. Okay, so that, one of the that's... worst power five teams in the last decade. But it doesn't matter because it's spring. And you know what? I actually like people are going to hate on this and say, oh, you know what? They're just all in on Dion. Watch them go six and six. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all about your eyeballs. It's all about what's selling, what people care about, what people want to consume. People want to consume Dion as opposed to like, oh, another random Alabama spring game or Georgia mm -hmm. spring game, which they say nothing. Two-time defending national champion, Georgia. I've heard. Two-time defending national champion, Georgia. Their spring game's on ESPN, too. One of the worst Power Five teams in the country the last decade, Colorado. The only, the only college spring game on the main network, ESPN. So, again, I, I think Hugh Freeze is going to do well at Auburn. I really do. I don't know how long he'll last. I think eventually it's gonna, it, it'll, it will turn because they always does at Auburn. That's just the history of Auburn, okay? But... This is why I think Auburn should have hired Dion because Dion is a game changer. He's a game changer as a recruiter. He's a game changer as ch changing the face of a program, changing the face of the way you market your program, of how your program is seen. He would have changed not only Auburn, he would have changed the SEC. I'm telling you, man, he would have convinced Sankey and the SEC presidents to play one game a year against, against the HBCUs, and he would have helped them stabilize because they're in financial trouble right now. He would have he would have convinced the SEC presidents to do that, and it would have been a fantastic thing. And then once the SEC did it, Connor, then the Big Ten would have followed. That stuff is people people don't talk about that enough. The lack of federal funding for HBCUs and like issues that go back to 
for the 1950s with how far behind they are and why yeah. it's not as simple as like, why don't they just get a rich alumni to come in and like save them? They're like, no, 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 no. This takes way more than that. And if you kind of have followed the Dion story and what he was able to do at Jackson state and the amount of legwork that it takes just to get to that place, it is hard. It is really hard. And have it would be your locker room. You've seen, have you seen Jackson state's locker room, the new one or the old one it's immaculate? Yeah. He got Walmart, he got American Airlines, he got Procter & Gamble, all these huge companies to invest in this program. I, I don't know how an SEC AD and president didn't see Dion and think, yeah, I'm going to take a chance on him. Yeah. Guy doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't cuss. Just who he is. He's just a straight-laced guy that, you know what, maybe he's flamboyant. You know, maybe he says things that you may not like to hear, but... He's what? What's his record as a coach now? 24 and five? Something like that. He's went back to back conference championships and walked in a program that was terrible when he got there. I think it's the dynamic. I think it's the dynamic of athletic director and Dion and the athletic director essentially saying as soon as they sign him on the dotted line. Right. They're they're out they're they're second fiddle and it's a it's a distant second and they ain't calling the shots and they know that Dion is that draw and it's all about what you need and look if the market had dictated that Dion had all of these offers coming in and if it wasn't Colorado I think we're t- telling a different story but I think that more than anything else is probably at this stage of the game what scared off more people and how many like let's let's be honest let's call it what it is how many coaches have gone from hbcu to big time power five job and then been like whoa they've just taken off that just doesn't happen and so there's there is that fear of the unknown but it's also the fear of the ego of course that plays a part so i'm going to give you an an over on him at colorado four and a half you taking the over the under years there hmm i think we're always low on this i think we're always low on this i would take the over I would take five. I would say five. And that's because I think that mm-hmm. takes a while. Mm-hmm. And you could say, oh, yeah, you can flip a roster this day and age with the transfer portal, which I totally get. There are still ebbs and flows that, that are going to come with it. Even if they have some sort of, oh, my God, Colorado's in the top 15 in year two. Look what Dion's right. doing. They're eight and four. Right. They've got things figured out. Like that to me is still going to be like a little bit more. Like, All right. We're, we're going to maybe take one step forward, two steps back. I'd I'd say five. That would that would probably be my guess. It wasn't like he was one and done at Jackson State. I mean, no, like no. It took a while. What would you say? I'm going under, not because he's going to get run off. I'm going under because I think he's going to take a bigger job. Like I think he's going. I think he's going to. After year three, there's going to be people coming after him. I mean, Norvell just got that extension to through what 2029 at Florida State. Yeah, I'm not talking about Florida State. <laughs> I'm just thinking in general. I think there's going to be there's going to be major Power Five teams coming after him because he's. I, I, you're going to see what he does there, not just on the football field, but off the football field. Yeah. And it's not going to be this, oh, I'm afraid of Dion. What's he going to do? You're going to really see what he's doing. You know what I mean? Like you've, you've seen what he did at Colorado. And was it all that bad? Was it all that bad that he walked in and told players, look, I'm coming in and I'm bringing players that are better than you. So you either work or get out. Was, was it all that bad? It's got Louie, you know? It's quite the thing to say, man. <laughs> I mean, look, look, it's a business now. If you think if you don't think it's a business now, I mean, you're you're falling way behind, man. This this it's no longer an amateur sport. It's no longer this, you know, this Pollyanna 
amateur model that they love to talk about and they've loved to talk about for 30, 40, 50 years. It's not that anymore. It's just not. It's changed. And it's a business. And I think all the players know that. And it's let's get it out in the open, man. You're going to pay them soon anyway. Soon enough, pay for play will get here because you're not getting that 1.5 billion annually from the new playoff and not giving the players some of it. I can tell you that. That's true. You've been on that forever. You have been, no doubt about it. Last one for you. I've taken up enough of your time. Um, you wrote about this. I think you wrote about this for first and ten, and you uh Tennessee, what happens next? And I'm not gonna let you take the third answer. This is I'm gonna narrow it down for you. Right. What happens next? Is the answer always gonna be E? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> what happens next? Tennessee basketball or Tennessee football wins the national title? Oh, man. Can't say Tennessee baseball. Yeah, that's the easy out. Yep. Um, can I say neither? Just never going to happen? Well, I mean, you mean like in the next, in the near future, right? Sure, or you mean with their current head coach. With their current head football. coach. I'll say football. I'll say football. Okay. I'll say I think there's more resources in football, and I think not that there's not good resources in basketball. I just think there's there's more resources and there's more importance placed on the idea of winning a national championship again. And and look, I was the guy who said they'd never win, they'd never be elite again. Yep. But you know, NIL changed that for everybody. That changed the dynamic of college sports. Period. So now they've got a chance to be. And now you know they're they've got a really good coach. They stumbled into a really good coach. Um, because they stumbled into a really good AD, and now look at them. They're, they're not what they were before. Tennessee is not what they were for the last, the previous two decades before Danny White got there. Not even close. It's not the same thing. It's a different brand right now, and that's a good thing. It's bold going against basketball. <laughs> they're already the Sweet 16. That was my old point. I, I mean, I, I think they're going to get the Final Four this year, but they're not going to win it. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. If they do, though, I'll send this to Fred over at um, – at uh, Old Takes Exposed. I'll make sure that he gets a hold of this. And it's our friend Bill Martin at Tennessee, too. He'll like it, I'm sure. I love Bill. Bill's a good dude. Really good dude. Really good dude. Um, Matt, this has been great, man. Really, really appreciate right, the time. We'll talk soon. All right, see you. How about this one? I call it Bold and Brown. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Let's do a little Bold and Brash Sweet 16 edition. Uh, I think if you had a chance to reset your bracket right now, how how much would really change? Like, I get it. A lot of people listening to this, maybe you picked Bama to win it. Maybe you picked Bama to lose early on because you just wanted to root against Bama, which I totally understand. Um, I'd be fascinated to know like how many people would really reset kind of like their expectations of the elite teams, of the elite teams. Even UCLA dealing with all these injuries, would you go back and be like, oh, you know what? I saw them look really, really strong against Northwestern. I'm going to go pick them to win it all. Um, so a lot of these, you're probably staying with what you originally thought. But there are, I mean, a few places, uh, Arkansas being one of them, where maybe if you didn't think before they were going to be able to to survive Kansas in the round of 32, all right, now do they have national championship upside? We'll see. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to kind of dig into some bold and brash predictions ahead of the Sweet 16, wherein there'll be three SEC teams in action, Tennessee, Bama, and Arkansas. Um, all right, let's we're gonna do we're gonna do the Saturday Down South Podcast Facebook group and got comments from our Instagram as well. If you don't follow Saturday Down South on Instagram, what are you doing? Great content. Shout out to our guy Alex. 
our social our social media manager who's just been absolutely crushing it for us. A lot of great stuff in there. Um, let's go to let's start with the Saturday on South podcast Facebook group. We've got one from Dave Kozar. Dave says Gonzaga finally wins the title. Drew Timmy drops a few more f bombs in the post game interview and shaves his mustache. I don't even know what that guy would look like without a mustache. I hate watching him for all the reasons that everybody does. I think all he can do is make right-handed layups, and I get it. He's got post moves, whatever. Um, I can't stand watching the guy. I think it's super boring. I am blown away that he still has another year of eligibility left. I know he says he's going pro, but like that guy is just going to haunt you. People say Stetson's old. Drew Timmy is 10 years older than Stetson Bennett. All right. At least Stetson Bennett wasn't in our lives before, you know, like before basically like 2020, whereas like Drew Timmy was. I think he was at least. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. He's been there for at least 30 years. He's been there, I think, since maybe the Clinton administration. Maybe. Somewhere around there. Let's go to this one from Grant Haney. Grant says, with the entire South region intentionally losing to avoid having to face the tide, Bama rolls easily to H-Town. The Vols and Rick Barnes are on the cusp of their first ever Final Four berth until Bill Snyder comes out of the stands at halftime and coaches K-State to a come-from-behind win over Rocky Top in the Elite Eight. Lastly, no one in the West region is able to stop the running hogs or Coach Musselman from taking his shirt off as the Razorbacks route the Huskies, UConn, in the Sweet 16 and defeat UCLA in the Elite Eight to avenge their 95 national championship loss to the Bruins, earning the Hogs the first Final Four berth since the Bill Clinton administration. <laughs> oh, I love that answer. Look, I'm going to be honest. If you can think of those mid-90s Arkansas teams and not think of Bill Clinton, good on you. That's not me. That's all I think of. I don't know if there's anybody quite as synonymous uh, with with Arkansas basketball as Bill Clinton was at that time. But yeah, I mean, it is kind of crazy to think about this. Like Arkansas can, if it even reaches the Elite Eight for the third consecutive year, so it wins one more game, beats beats a really good UConn team, that it would be something Nolan Richardson ever did. Even in their heyday, their, their peak, they never did that three consecutive years to get to the Elite Eight. Um, would just be unbelievably impressive to do that. But uh, that's why I think Eric Musselman's best basketball coach in the SEC. Um, let's let's dig into that other part. If Tennessee gets to an Elite Eight and loses to Kansas State, a really good Kansas State team, Keontae Johnson, how could he not be rooting for the guy? The story of the tournament, as far as I'm concerned, um, that three that he hit at the end of that Kentucky game, oh my gosh, hand in his face, did not care. Um, look, I, I think that it's not crazy to think that Tennessee loses in a game like that and not all is lost. And we don't have to go back to this. Oh, see Rick Barnes just going to choke, just blew a golden opportunity. Obviously there would be that angst there. I think getting to the final four is one of those all time cool things. You never forget it. Even if you're a program that's done it a bunch, you still talk about this final four appearance, that final four appearance. Like I have a buddy who is a Loyola fan. Yeah, my, my one of my best buddies, big time Loyola fan. He's gonna talk about that forever. Like was season tickets holder to Loyola basketball games the year before they went to the Final Four, and is we'll talk about that Final Four appearance for the end of time. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that still getting to the Elite Eight with this team would be quite the testament 
to Rick Barnes and like getting past Duke, because I already said in the open, I mean, that would just be an unbelievable accomplishment. Um, okay, let's do this one from Mitch Aldridge. Mitch says, Bama and Tennessee both advance to the Final Four. The Vols break their heart again. So wait a minute. What is, wow. Can we, is it, I know it, it's Houston, but I asked this question because Tennessee fans would ask, can you bring cigars into the stadium? <laughs> they would have to know. Bama fans would actually do the same thing. You know what? Let's let's get this out there right now. If that happens, Bama, Tennessee, Final Four, semifinal. First of all, the internet would just melt down collectively. But can we get a one-time exemption to get cigars in the stadium just so that the entire place can be a cloud of smoke? Probably not. The business in Houston that says... Indoor establishment, cigars, welcome. Look, I'm not one for secondhand smoke, but if you make that your marketing pitch, if those two teams are playing in Houston, buddy, you're welcome. Like Hayes just said, I'll take 3%. That's fine. My cut will be little. That would be incredible. We'd be unbelievable to see. Um, SEC, two SEC teams playing in the national championship. Never happened. Never happened. Could this be the year? Hmm. Don't know. I mean, kind of works out the fact that you're not going to have this. Uh, the SEC is not going to cannibalize itself in the way that it kind of did 2017. Um, not going to have like 2019 either, where Auburn and Kentucky are facing each other in the Elite Eight. Um, Florida and South Carolina were the teams who faced each other in 2017. But it kind of sets up really well with the the three teams who have made it through, obviously with Arkansas, Tennessee, and Bama all being in different regions. So – it's not impossible. It's not impossible. When was the last time that happened? Mississippi State, Kentucky did it. What I think what was one of those years? 96? Am I making that up? Might have been 96? I don't know. Somebody looked that up for me. But yeah, that would be quite the year for SEC basketball. Uh, let's go to this one from let's go to this one from our Instagram. We have okay, similar vein. Dylan Bush. Uh Arkansas over Bama to win it all. To do so for Arkansas at this stage of the game as a non-top three seed, only been one non-top three seed, UConn, of course, who who was able to pull that off, uh, who won a national championship in the 21st century. I don't know that Arkansas has that kind of upside. That's going to be an unpopular take. And if you could beat Kansas, you could beat anybody. I'm not saying that. They can beat anybody. Six games is a lot. That is a lot. And I've seen now enough of them to think, hmm, I don't know that this is the type of group that strings it together for that long. I don't know if they have that kind of a floor and, you know, barring Debo Davis turning into the second coming of Shabazz Napier, which I won't rule out. I don't think we see that happen. But our website would certainly <laughs> would certainly appreciate a, a scenario in which we get an Arkansas-Bama National Championship. Uh, Chase Childress says, Princeton, first 15 seed to the final four with Michigan State, Arkansas, and Texas. Here's the question. If Texas gets to the final four, do we see any SEC flexing yet from that, from the powers that be? I wouldn't say no. <laughs> um, it'll be one of those things that like we'll look back on in history and 
the SEC will claim a Texas accomplishments right around this time and just kind of group it in together because they'll be like, oh, well, you know, they did this at this time, even though they didn't do it against SEC competition. But if we're talking about, oh, you have some of the most prestigious programs in the country who are in the SEC, and then you would talk about what they've done in this decade, that's probably the better way to be able to skirt around that. Princeton getting to the Final Four is a 15 seed. There's a reason we've never seen a 15 seed in the Elite Eight. Never. And Florida Gulf Coast was basketball drugs. <laughs> that was. For the kids who don't remember that in 2013, that's all-time YouTube video. One time Lauren said to me, hey, can we just watch videos of Dunk City? <laughs> it's like, yes, dear. Yes, we can. We can absolutely do that. Um, don't think it happens, but that's, hey, that's what we're here for. That's, that is bold and brash. Uh, let's get to this one from, uh, we've got a lot of hogs in the final four. Jacob Stringer says that, uh, Michael Sturdivant says Miami to the final four. God, Isaiah Wong is so good. So freaking good, mm, man. And that they got that big, that guy first ever Nicaraguan born division one player had no idea that was a thing. And then he had like probably what, like 48 offensive rebounds against Indiana. I uh, could definitely see a scenario in which Miami gets to the final four. Brady Carson says three sec final four schools and the fourth team is Miami. Yeah, that would be pain. Um, that would be pain. The Miami part, not the three sec teams in the final four. I should clarify that. Actually, you know what? Maybe it's maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. If you are listening to this, do you and you like you see your team lose in the NCAA tournament or like you lose in the playoff semifinal or something? You root for then for that team to win the national championship. Like when Ohio State lost to Georgia, Ohio State fans aren't sitting there rooting for TCU all of a sudden to beat Georgia. They're they're rooting for Georgia. So I think it's like, oh yeah, we gave the national champions their best game. We pushed them to the brink. Um, and it makes you feel better about yourself. So I guess I should be rooting for Miami. I do like Miami. I like Jim Laranaga. I can't not think of George Mason every time you see Jim, Jim Laranaga. Or I can't not think of Jim Beheim. Anybody ever seen those two guys in the same room? I haven't. Let's go to this one from uh, P. Benson0924. Again, this is Instagram, not Facebook. He says, uh, UConn going to have another weird national championship year. I'm still mixing up the Hurley brothers. I know that's wrong. I'll always get it mixed up in my head. I know Bobby's at Arizona State. Danny's at UConn. I still get it mixed up in my head. I write it wrong all the time. I don't have to write it very much. So that's probably why uh, Danny a little bit more an animated than Bobby is. Um, look, if UConn wins it, it'll be the ultimate basketball nerd national championship because they've been so high on Ken Palm all year. I think they were like fourth in Ken Palm coming into the NCAA tournament. And they're, they're a fun team to watch. Like and when they, when they put it on, they really put it on. I think they were the last undefeated team in the country. They lost to what December 31st is or something like that. Um, but I was, I had UConn in the elite eight and I thought that was going to be like, Oh, I'd have them going the furthest in my bracket. Now, like there, there are people in my bracket pool of like UConn winning a national championship. Shout out to my buddy, Jackson. Let's go to this one from um, – no, this person says Georgia winning it all. I think they forgot what sport we are talking about. Um, 
Okay, let's end with we got three Arkansas ones. Let's knock these out. Um, DTH Conley says Arkansas makes it to the final four. Yeah. Don't think that's impossible. Don't at all. I mean, it's setting up well. It it really is. Again, don't think they have national championship upside, but UConn and then potentially, gosh, I would worry about their that matchup with UCLA's guards, though. Again, I've already ranted kind of about the experienced guards and how much I think that matters with Campbell and Hawkes and what those guys do which is why I was so high on UCLA and with Arkansas is kind of inexperienced there. Although Devo is not inexperienced, but um, that would be the concern I would have in that matchup. But yeah, I mean the weird, and the, the dumb thing, what we would do in college football, if Musk got to just got to the elite eight, if there was like an equivalent of that, if it was three consecutive new Year's six bowls, I guess the Dan Mullen early Florida accomplishment would be like, ah, you know what? Like maybe he's never going to get over the hump, <laughs> you know, getting to three elite eights and doing so at a place that look had such prolonged frustration in the 21st century doing so as immediate as Musselman did with very different rosters would be unbelievable. Um, but yeah, getting to getting to the final four is that seems to be the consensus in these bold and brash. A lot of people very much back in on Arkansas. Uh, Sarah in the Ozarks, a little bit biased here. Uh, she says, "Let's just say Musk's shirt comes off again." Woo pig. Is that going to become an every big game win thing moving forward? Because you kind of already played that card. I I don't know if you can cut down the net shirtless they might no shoes no shirt no service they might have that sort of deal with punching your ticket to the final four i don't know i could be wrong maybe they'll change the rules for them. uh let's end with this one from doggos and barbells what are your hobbies uh arkansas makes it to the championship no one seats make it to the final four man for a hot minute one seeds very much very much on on high alert Although Bama, I guess, never really was, but the Houston thing, yeah, that was uh that would have been quite the development to see that play out. So you're essentially saying Bama loses one of these next two games, Houston loses one of these next two games. Bama is more likely to get there. Definitely is. Sasser looked pretty good to me. Like looked pretty good against uh against Auburn after you know, there was all that concern, all that panic in the in the first round game where it's like, oh, he's hurt again. Like he's he's tweaked it and Samson's, you know, keeping him sidelined. I think everybody was kind of like, whoa, this just opened things up. I don't know that it opened things up that much. Houston's really good. Just really good. I don't know how you get a rebound against that team. They'll they'll find a way to block you out no matter who or where you are on the court. That that team is just relentless. Um, I think Bama is more likely to get there despite the fact that Houston has the ex- the experience on their side. But yeah, Final Four without, without one season, that'd be fun. I think, I think any, anybody would be okay with that. It's already kind of turning into the Final Four without or the, the, the Sweet 16 that's lacking blue bloods. UCLA is still in the mix. But other than that, man, we are, we are really, really lacking. Um, is Michigan State considered a, a blue blood? No, not by the traditional sense but I guess more of a 21st century blue blood. So um, yeah, I, I think everybody and their mother, if you want madness, no one seeds in the final four, not impossible, definitely still on the table. And after the opening weekend that we just saw, I would not rule that out at all. Um, thank you for all the submissions 
Saturday Down South so, social uh, platforms. Um, if you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter, at the SDS Pod at Sat Down South. Subscribe to our basketball newsletter. You can do that at Blue Chip Grits uh, over at bluechipgrit.com. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with Figure It Out or Bold and Brush. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.